Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're enjoying the show, if you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would be really helpful. I'd like to thank Gotham Gupta for introducing me to today's guest, Lee Hauer, co-founder and general partner of NextView Ventures. NextView is a high-conviction, hands-on, seed-stage VC firm that invests in founders who are redesigning the everyday economy. Some of their investments include Grove Collaborative, Plastic, Attentive, Let Go, and Tap Commerce. Previously, Lee was an early employee and served as a director of financial services at PayPal, and then went on to co-found LinkedIn and serve as a principal and venture partner at PJC. Lee has such a variety of truly fascinating experiences and shares such wonderful advice for founders fundraising. I'm excited to share this conversation with you. So without further ado, here's Lee. Lee, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. What attracted you to work in technology in the first place? And what was it like working with Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, Reid Hoffman, and the rest of the PayPal mafia? Yeah, it's a great question. I was coming out of college, uh, out of undergrad, just over about 20 years ago at this point. So I was a senior in college in, in 1999, which was the kind of the peak of the, the Web 1.0 dot com, you know, internet boom and, and bust at that at that point in time too. And so I, you know, when I was in school, I I studied both engineering and business and, you know, was interested in trying to find ways to combine both both the kind of engineering and technical side with business side in my career. And so I was, you know, drawn to, you know, opportunities to work in the technology field and and startups in particular, uh, just given the all the all the exciting things that I, I was learning about and reading about at that point in time. This was sort of pre-TechCrunch, pre-Twitter, you know. Um, so there were actually physical magazines like uh, Fast Company and Industry Standard and all those stuff talking about what was going on in, in the tech economy. And so to make a long story short, I um, I decided to pursue job opportunities in, in tech startups. Um, and by a set of kind of random coincidences, I got to meet Elon Musk uh in kind of the latter part of, of 99, so fall 99. He had come back to uh, University of Pennsylvania where I went to, to undergrad and he was giving a guest lecture. And so I got to meet him after the guest lecture and there was a, a small dinner that they have with you know 10 or 12 students. And I was able to go to that and ended up sitting next to him and, and chatting him up. And uh, and so he invited me to come out and uh, interview with what at the time was, was called X.com. I don't know how much you know about the genesis of PayPal, but there was originally two halves uh, there was one company called X.com that, that Elon Musk had started and was originally backed by, by Sequoia Capital. There was another half uh, called Confinity, which is the half that, that Peter Thiel and Max Lepchin started, which had been uh, originally backed by the old Nokia Ventures, now Bluebone Ventures. So anyway, I got to chat with Elon and the, some of the folks at, at X.com when it was still a pretty small startup, um, maybe 20 odd people. And Elon ended up offering me a job and I took it on the spot, flew back from Palo Alto to Philadelphia. And, uh, went back to school for the, the rest of my senior year and then uh, started uh, kind of in the early part of 2000 or, or spring of 2000 once the two companies had uh, had merged together. So the, the Confinity half and the and the X.com half had, had merged together as a 50-50 merger of equals and, um, you know, grew as, grew as PayPal from there. So that's what attracted me to working there. Um, in terms of what it was like working there um, in the early days, it was a really unique and exciting place. PayPal, first of all, there was you know, again, the company was formed by sort of these two halves of people, but, you know, all the folks at PayPal were super smart, hardworking, pretty young. You know, most of our executives in, in the company were in their, you know, early 30s. And, you know, we had some, some big ambitions. You know, I, I still have my original PayPal uh, coffee mug or X.com coffee mug and PayPal t-shirts and all those, you know, company swag, which, you know, said uh, PayPal, the world currency on it. And so, we really did have big visions and ambitions of creating a, you know, not just a digital payment system, but really, you know, kind of a, a digital financial, you know, ecosystem for consumers and businesses to, you know, be able to make payments on the, on the internet. So it was a, it was a very exciting time. And, and, you know, we also went through our ups and downs and people have, uh, there's been a very variety of books written about uh, PayPal and people have, have talked about different parts of the story. So we, we built a really exciting company and, you know, we were one of the first, tech companies to go public, went public in Valentine's Day, February of 2002. So this was, we were one of the first tech companies to go public after the dot-com crash and, and after the NASDAQ and the 
die. But from the time we were a startup through, you know, the initial IPO of the company and then sold to eBay towards the end of O2, we went through lots and lots of downs. We, again, this has been pretty well chronicled, but, uh, you know, the company was burning 10 million plus a month at its, at its worst point. And we had to overcome challenges with fraud and increasing revenue and dealing with, you know, regulators and Visa and MasterCard and banks that, you know, viewed us as competitor. And uh, so uh, I got to see both the, the, the ups and downs and, you know, the roller coaster that is uh, every startup, both, both, you know, ones that are pretty successful in the end, like PayPal, and, and even ones that are, that are challenged. Um, so it's great. I, I like in um, the analogy I draw is, is that being part of PayPal in the early days, it was like uh, truly like a rocket ship, right? Sometimes the rocket was pointed up at the sky. Uh, sometimes the rocket was, was headed back down at the ground. Sometimes it was going sideways, but uh, the rocket motor was lit the entire time. <laughs> That's amazing. What were some of the learnings from those moments as well as learnings from you know co-founding uh, LinkedIn? Uh, and maybe you can take through us uh, that story as well and how those have influenced you as an investor. I got involved as, as one of the co-founders of LinkedIn uh, because I'd worked for Reed Hoffman at, at PayPal before. And the, the founding story of LinkedIn is, you know, like many other um, startups, originally it was uh, seven or eight of us working out of Reed's uh, apartment in Mountain View uh, when we first started. And, you know, people started to work on it nights and weekends. Um, and then kind of everybody quit their job and started working on it full time. And the, the founding team at, at LinkedIn, I had worked with Reed at, at PayPal before. So, you know, he was our, really the, the kind of main founder and our CEO. He pulled me in and then he had also pulled in uh, a number of folks that had worked with him at his startup uh, prior to PayPal, which was a, a company called SocialNet, um, which was sort of pre-social networking before we even started talking about things as being social networking, but uh, kind of a, a, a prehistoric company in the social networking uh, wave, if you will. And uh, so our, you know, our CTO, our, our VP of product, you know, our uh, first couple of engineers were all folks that had, had worked with Reed at, at SocialNet, and then I had worked with them at PayPal. And the, you know, the, the abbreviated version of the LinkedIn founding story, we, we started the company, really started working on it sort of nights and weekends in the latter part of 2002. We launched the site publicly uh, May of 2003. This is before Facebook existed or social networking was really a mainstream phenomenon. Things like Friendster existed. Friendster was sort of the largest social network at the time, which which is no more. And, and MySpace was was just starting out, still relatively early. You know, we set out to build a professionally focused, you know, social networking product. And and you know, it's really actually uh, heartening to see now, 15, 17 years later, that much of the things that we set out to do with LinkedIn, that the company has actually been able to, to achieve and become. Um, and so we we'd always envisioned it as a horizontal, you know product for all kinds of workers, not just people who worked in, you know, one, one industry or another industry. And, you know, we talked about it being resume 2.0 and a way that, you know, uh, work can get done and, you know, people can use it for jobs and other kinds of things. It's nice to see that, uh, you know, it's, it's a pretty decent sized business now with Microsoft and uh, it's, it's great to see what's come. So with respect to uh, what influenced me as an investor, you know, having been an early employee at PayPal and then you know, one of the co-founders of LinkedIn. I, I think the first thing is is just having been part of a startup, whether you're, you know, just an employee or you're a, a co-founder or, you know, even if you join later in the life of the company, you get to see lots of things and, and understand what it's like inside a startup, um, which is useful as a, as a VC investor. Then having operating experience or being a founder doesn't inherently make you a, a great VC. Um, you know, a lot of what we do, you you don't really learn or, or don't necessarily get from, from startup operating experience. And there's lots of really fantastic, you know, VC investors out there, you know, who 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 didn't really have operating backgrounds, you know, the Mike Marks, the world, and, and others. But you know, that being said, having um, that operating experience, you know, it does it, it gives you some empathy uh, with founders and credibility with founders in terms of you know having walked in their shoes and, and having experience in the same things that they've experienced. It also allows you, you know, when when companies hit different you know bumps in the road or or when they have successes along the way, you can. You know, appreciate them in a, in a you know, maybe a firsthand way that's different than than VC um, investors who have never been a founder or never been an operator. I think the things though that that beyond just the empathy and credibility with founders, I think you get to see and look for things in startups that you know, when done right, you may have seen yourself. And what I mean, just as a for example, you know, one of the key things for about many startups, not all startups, but many many startups, is the founding team. In addition to being 
entrepreneurial and ambitious and hardworking and smart and all of the, the other qualities that we look for, you know, trust amongst the co-founders or the founding team actually has a, has a pretty big impact in the very early sort of cycle rate of a startup. And what I mean is, you know, when it's a five person, 10 person, 15 person organization, you know, you're making this and, and you're at the concept stage or, you know, early product development, you know, customer development phase. You're making lots of decisions really, really fast with a teeny tiny bit of, uh, of information as, as founders or even employees of the startup. And being able to make collaborative decisions quickly and efficiently is, is very much aided, not just by people being smart and hardworking and, and ambitious, but also, you know, having some baseline layer of trust amongst them that they can understand each other and agree with each other and disagree with each other, but, but still fundamentally trust each other. I saw this at PayPal and I, I definitely saw this at LinkedIn where and it's something that I look for in founding teams, which is it doesn't mean that the co-founders of the company have to be, you know, the the closest friends from from growing up or college, or that they have to have worked together for for five or ten or fifteen years. But often there's connective tissue amongst the founders that enables them to have that trust layer early on in the life of the company, which which lets you make, you know, better, more rapid decisions when you're making a lots of decisions with limited information, you know, on a day by day by minute basis. Um, so. You know, that's an example of something which, you know, I think as a BEC investor, I, I, I look for in founding teams and something I saw firsthand and, and got to appreciate. During the fundraising process, it's obviously very, very fast and you don't normally have a ton of time to do due diligence on companies, especially, you know, in the seed stage when there isn't a ton of data typically to go on. When you're evaluating companies and and founding teams, how do you know if they do, or what are the maybe some of the type of mechanisms that you use in order to find out if they really do have that trust layer? One is so much of what we base our investment decision at the seed stage on is our firsthand impression of um, the company and, and, and what's the company at that stage, basically the founders and you know the vision that they have and maybe a product prototype or, or something. It's not, you know, to your point, it's not like it's a 50 or 100 person organization. It's not like it's a company that's been around for five years. It's not like a company that you can go and point to, you know, a hundred different paying customers that have already used the product. So, so much of our, you know, impression of the team, it really is based on firsthand interactions. And so, you know, I can look at a pitch deck or look at people's, you know, LinkedIn profiles and, and get a sense of, okay, how do these people know each other or do they know each other or, you know, what commonality or, or shared perspective do they have that, that could, be the basis of that trust layer. But then you also just interact with them, right? You know, you interact with them in slightly formal settings in the sense of, you know, sitting in a room pitching with a slide deck. But we also, you know, visit the company's offices, even if they're working out of somebody's, you know, uh, apartment or they're working out of a co-working space. And, you know, maybe you, uh, you know, grab lunch with the the founders and and get to interact with them, uh, you know, outside of the the kind of office setting. And, you know, you're, you're right that, when we make an investment decision at the seed stage, you know, from first meeting to term sheet is a few weeks to sometimes even days. It's not, you know, months and years, but you can, you can start to form an impression of um, the founding team as a group. And, you know, maybe they already have some early employees um, and what trust layer does exist there in addition to just looking at, you know, how do these people know each other? How, how, how do they relate to each other? The other thing is, at the seed stage, part of the part of what my partners and I at NextView, our job is to get to know founders before they start company. And we spend a lot of time, you know, trying to 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 get to know people who are maybe a founder today, but may start another company again in five years, or maybe have never been a founder, but you know, they're they're uh, in an operating role at startups and, and on a trajectory where they they might start a company in a couple of years. And so again, getting to to know the founders and getting to you know, make an assessment of the trust layer that exists between the founding team. You can do a lot of that in, in an intense period of a few days or a few weeks. But then, you know, in many cases, we're able to do that even before we're actually getting to a, a three seed pitch. Would it be possible if you could walk me through your due diligence process? The process plays out typically over a, a couple of weeks. So it's, it happens relatively quickly, but it's not, you know, there are times where we meet a company and they're pretty late in their process and we have to to, to move our diligence process very, very quickly in a couple of days. But um, you usually have a couple of weeks at least to, 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 to manage your process. At NextView, because we all we do is seed stage investing, um, we really hone in primarily into two areas, which is market and team. 
Um, if you think about any kind of, not just seed, but even Series A or kind of early stage companies, you know, you can look at the, the product or the technology, you can look at the team, you can look at the market, you can look at maybe some early, you know, uh, customer dynamics or, or, or uh, you know, sales history. You can look at the, you know, the financing needs of the company over time. But there's only the number of parameters on which you can assess a very early stage company is, is limited. It's, you know, four or five parameters or so. Um, and so we really, because we focus just on seed, we, we hone in primarily on market and team. Team is, is obvious in the sense that we want to get to know the founders and make our own firsthand assessment of them. Our diligence process always includes some references on the founders too, both quote-unquote on-list references, people that they you know, suggest that we talk to, um, as well as usually you know, off-list references where there are people that we might you know, know who are connected to them um, or, or have known them or worked with them in the prior context. And you know, broadly speaking, when we are making our first-hand assessment of uh, founders or when we're conducting, you know, reference calls on founders with other people, the things that we're trying to understand are, you know, really just a handful of things. One is, you know, really what's the intellectual horsepower of this this individual or this, this team of individuals. Entrepreneurship is in many ways a, an unnatural act. In many ways, it's akin to, you know, the first humans who, who left their tribe and set out in some, you know, desolate wasteland and hope of finding, you know, a new promised land or, or whatever, right? It's a, it, it's an unnatural act in the sense that, you know, people are taking risks, they're trying new things, they're they're breaking this convention in many ways. You know, we try to assess founders on really what, what kind of entrepreneurial DNA do they have. Great founders, <clears throat> it's less that they're choosing to start a company, it's almost like a compulsion, right? It's, it's like they have this vision and they have this drive and they have this ambition to, you know, create something new and have a specific impact on, uh, you know, a specific part of, of, of an industry or society or whatever. And they almost can't help but not start the company. And so we try to assess that kind of entrepreneurial DNA and entrepreneurial drive in addition to, you know, their, their intellectual horsepower. As I mentioned earlier, we look at the kind of the trust layer amongst the founding team. And then we also try and get a sense of the, the character and integrity of the, of the founders. Um, as many have said, life's too short to work with you know, people who, you know, you, you don't trust or, or have concerns about working with. With respect to the market, the reason we place a lot of emphasis on market is that big picture market forces become almost inevitable. And companies that maybe have a, a fantastic product or service and a great team and whatever, but they're betting on a market that, you know, sort of goes against them or doesn't develop in the ways that they, they thought, you know, will struggle to build a really transformative business. And conversely, you always want to back A++ founding teams and people who are working hard and have a 10x better innovation. That's all, all the things that we look for. But, you know, there are times where sometimes the market force are, is so overwhelming that even the company that has good technology, not the greatest technology, can build a, a big transformative business, you know, because the, the market wave that they're riding is, is so uh, impactful. So when we're trying to assess the market at the early stage, there's rudimentary things like, you know, what is the truly addressable market? You know, people talk about TAM, you know, being total addressable market, but a lot of times startups come up with what I call a fantasy TAM, meaning $8 billion is spent on, you know, something within the economy of whatever. But really, it's only a fraction of that that's actually spent on, you know, the product or service that they're creating. So we, we look at truly addressable market, meaning, you know, how much is really spent on the exact thing that this company is trying to, to do or the exact area of the, of the industry or kind of the constraint of this disrupt. How can we help, you know, maybe founders think about what their truly addressable market is? You know, I think there's dissonance between investors and founders on market sizing for a couple different reasons. One is sometimes, you know, literally a definition of what what's in the market, what's not in the market differs from one to the other. And by the way, Investors get it wrong as often as founders get it wrong. So, so you know, even a great investor, um, you know, a great entrepreneur is thinking about a market 110% of their time. You know, even a great investor might be thinking about that market or investing in that market a portion of their time, but they're also investing in businesses that are not a market and thinking about other things. So the distance, as I said, between, you know, an investor and founder on, on market size or, or how can founders really hone in on, on, on truly addressable markets one is, I think, just intellectual honesty. And, and so sometimes there's an urge to sort of paint the broadest picture possible of, of what the market is for, for you know, your, your, your product or service. And that's understandable. But, you know, if you sort of challenge yourself to be intellectually honest and say, okay, well, theoretically, this much money is spent on X, but the thing that we're doing really is only one component of X, then, then your market is 
you know, how much money is spent on, on that, right? So to draw a very simple analogy, you know, the passenger car business in America actually is something like half a billion plus in, in terms of new, new car sales. But if you're making tires, right, you know, you're, you're one component of that, right? You're not, you're, the car economy might be half a trillion dollars, um, but, um, you know, the market for tires might only be 40 billion or whatever the number is. I don't know. The top. You know, and so you see companies, and by the way, it's not just teeny tiny startups, you know, not to pick on them, but, you know, in, in Casper's S1, there's, there's a statistic in there about, you know, the global sleep economy is, is X, you know, billion, trillion dollars big. You often see like uh, figures that are thrown out there, which is, you know, all, all of everything in the world about, you know, film like X is, is this big um, when it's really, again, just a, a slice of that that the companies are actually addressing. So I think it's entirely fair to talk about expansion markets. I think it's entirely fair to talk about we now live in a world where startups um, can address global markets far more rapidly than they could 10 or 20 years ago. So I, I think it's important and I, I certainly don't fault startups and founders who think about saying, okay, we're starting in market X, which is this big. But we can rapidly expand our product suite to cover, you know, X plus one market and X plus two market and X plus three market over the next five years. Or to say, you know, we're a U.S. based company. We're going to start here, but, you know, we can address the global audience, you know, from day one or pretty, pretty quickly after day one. So I, I think there's lots of ways that founders can, can be both intellectually honest about what their truly addressable market is and not draw too broad a picture, um, but also, you know, be, be generous about, um, you know, what the opportunity that they have in front of them over the long term. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a great point. I guess it's about really the logic of how they actually came with their truly addressable uh, market. Is the team slide and the market slide kind of the most like two of the most important elements of, of a pitch deck? So for a seed stage company, I think they absolutely are. And and in fact, the team and market slide is actually pretty important for almost any stage uh, of startup. But certainly for for a seed stage startup, there I think you know the most important or among the most important components of a of a of a pitch or a presentation because again at that stage maybe you have a product prototype or maybe some you know an alpha product with some other customers but you know you, you can't point to something that has many many millions of users or you know many millions of of uh you know SaaS revenue or, or whatever um, these are typically much earlier companies in their in their life cycle and then furthermore the market really matters because of what i was just talking about in terms of to build a big transformative business you've got to be playing in a you know, a big market that where there's an opportunity to, you know, use innovation and create something new and, and take a, a meaningful share of that market. So that, you know, that matters. And by the way, sometimes we're looking at companies where the market for what they do today is 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 modest, but you know, it's pretty clear that that market's going to be, you know, changing or shifting or or or, or capturing a, a a different market, you know, in the next five to ten years. And so, anyway, so so it's a long-winded way of saying, you know, the market. Slide has a huge impact in terms of convincing a, a seed stage VC that you have a, a shot at building a, a large transformative business. And then the team slide obviously matters because at that stage, you know, seed stage investors primarily betting on a team in the market. I know a few days ago, you know, Casper's S1 came out. How has that influenced you about you have some investments that of companies that started out in the DTC model? So I was just wanted to hear your thoughts of if the Casper has changed your your thinking on on DTC on on companies that initially started out DTC. Uh, the, the short answer is no. The um, you know uh, we were fortunate to to actually you know see Casper at the seed stage. We were you know, we did we did invest in the company, but you know they built a you know a, a great business that has lots of happy customers. I'm, I'm a happy customer. I've bought two mattresses through Casper. So I, I think, um, you know, I take my hat off to, you know, the company and the team for, for, for what they've built. And so, you know, seeing the S1 hasn't, hasn't changed our, our mindset or sentiment around direct-to-consumer, you know, investing. I think I'm fond of saying, you know, one of the most important things you can do as a VC investor is get the big picture right. Um, it's, it's easy to get distracted by lots of things and get the big picture wrong. Um, but I'd much rather get the big picture right and be, you know, wrong on some of the smaller details um, uh, because that's that's how you find transformative businesses. And so, if I talk about big picture consumer trends over the last, you know, ten years, which I think are likely to persist in the coming decade and beyond, um, you know, the fact that uh, lots of different kinds of consumer products and services can market directly to to their end customers, that's new. And that, that is a big real thing happening. And it's changing, you know, the nature of market, you know, marketing and supply chains. It's changing the way brands get built. 
it's changing the actual, it's changing the expectation of consumers with the brands that they, you know, purchase or interact with. So the fact that, you know, 50 or 100 years ago, a product that ended up in a consumer's hand, you know, went through a, a retailer and maybe a wholesaler or a distributor and, and there was a manufacturer somewhere further up the chain, you know, meant lots of things in terms of how the feedback cycle between end customers and the people who, who desire to produce products, uh, you know, happened. It, it had implications for supply chain and how things get marketed and, you know, sort of where, where values created or captured along that, that path. And so, you know, stepping back, you know, the ability of brands to interact directly with consumers and to, for many brands to, to start or even, you know, be fully, you know, sort of D2C brands through, through their life cycle, we think is a huge change that has occurred and, and something that's likely to persist. And so at Nexi, we've invested in a number of companies that, you know, have started as, as direct-to-consumer brands. Some of them will, you know, probably remain direct-to-consumer brands for indefinitely. Um, you know, some of them might evolve into being, you know, brands that, that have a strong consumer you know, direct to consumer channel or presence, but then also explore distribution through through other channels. So in that sense, I think the, uh, you know, learning more about Casper as we all got to do, you know, with the the, the filing of the S one, uh, you know, it was informative. And you got to see and learn more about that business in particular, but it, it didn't change our our mindset on you know the the fact that brands and consumers can can interact with each other and and direct to consumer uh, distribution strategies and and. Brand building strategies, you know, really are a great option for many companies. The lack of, I would say, successful exits in like the CPG D2C model, has that influenced you at all in terms of making investments in in these sorts of companies? Or um, or do you or, or do you feel like it's just way too early? Because of course this model's only been around for, for not too long. I would say we're we're still quite bullish on uh, direct-to-consumer companies, both the ones that we've already invested in and, you know, we're constantly at, at new ones too. In fairness, there have been some some decent-sized exits out there if you think about, you know, Dollar Shave Club and, and others that have, that have had, you know, fairly substantial exits, Aries, you know, others. So, you know, so so I, I believe that there's there's exit opportunities out there, both both on the M&A path and the IPO path. I think also a lot of times sentiment around companies recently, when I say recently, I mean the last two, three, four years, is at times at times perhaps overly influenced by expectations and, and terminal scale. And what I mean is we live in a world where sometimes people think that every great company is going to be, you know, the next Facebook or the next Google. It turns out that once in a generation companies are actually once in a generation. They don't actually happen 20 times a year. And so if you say, okay, a company that creates something from from nothing from scratch builds a really good business in terms of you know revenue, underlying unit profitability, you know marketing capital efficiency, all of those things, um, and then exits for you know a billion or whatever dollars. Like that's a that's a great business. And so at times I, I feel like the broader sentiment around companies kind of blows hot and cold because you know people's expectations about what is you know the the, the opportunity in front of them sometimes gets overinflated or underinflated. And so, you know, talking specifically about direct-to-consumer, I think if, if we talk very narrowly about what people refer to as digitally native vertical brands, DMVBs, there's actually been a few uh, good exits already, and I think there will be more. But I also think that if you think about consumer businesses or direct-to-consumer businesses, it's about more than just, you know, DMVBs. We're investors, for example, in a company called Grove Collaborative. You can make an argument that Grove Collaborative is a direct-to-consumer brand. You can also make an argument that Grove Collaborative is, a, is an e-commerce company. And, you know, where the line blurs is, is up for anyone's debate. For those who, who, who don't know Grove Collaborative, it's a, it's a company in San Francisco that is an e-commerce company around personal care products and home products uh, in the CPG space, particularly products that have an element of sustainability about them. So think about things like dishwasher soap, but instead of being this giant orange bottle that, that, that you know, is mostly water and, you know, you recycle or put away a plastic bottle at the end, it's a reusable, you know, glass and plastic vessel with a, a concentrated liquid that gets, you know, resupplied every, every month or two. You know, Grub's also in personal care and, and now in, in clean beauty as well. But that's a business where a, a massive amount of their revenue is their own brand products. So in that sense, you could you could describe them as a, you know, a brand or a, a you know a D2C brand if you wanted to. They also sell products that are third-party national brands that, that are not their own. So in that sense, they're they're an e-commerce company, not a brand. In reality, they're actually this new hybrid thing, which is a little bit of both. 
and you think about other if you think about companies that look something like that it's actually a, a little bit of a broader universe right so then you, you're talking about companies like stitch fix is stitch fix a brand or is stitch fix an e-commerce company well it's kind of both a, a bunch of the clothing that they sell is actually you know their own you know brands or private label brands in addition to third-party brands that they sell you think about companies like you know chewy you know which is you know, become one of the dominant players in the in the pet space. The majority of what they sell is third party brands, but a portion of what they sell is their own brands. So, I, I think we we think about you know direct to consumer brands in a maybe a little bit broader sense than some people do. If you, if you, you think about it, if you think about it narrowly as you know a digitally native vertical brand that literally just sells one product and you know is always direct to consumer. I think there's lots of opportunity there, but you know it, it may not be as broad as as the, the overall direct to consumer trends and the overall changing of of the fact that the relationship between companies that that design and produce things and their end customers have just collapsed by you know several several degrees like that um, that hybrid model that's really fascinating i also wanted to cover as well talk about one of my uh, favorite blog posts that you wrote denouement where where at the macro level you walk through the last 10 years of venture capital and the and, and you describe how the emphasis has shifted and would you mind just summarizing the last 10 years of, of VC investing and thinking about today's era? It's a, it's a good question. So this is a post that I wrote maybe a month or two, a couple months ago, uh, towards the end of, of uh, 2019. The, the, the brief, the 30 second summary of the post was basically the last 10 years of venture capital has been, we've kind of gone through this, this interesting cycle where, you know, the beginning of that decade, which was, you know, sort of the Oh, nine time frame. You know, we were coming out of this extraordinarily deep, you know, global recession, great recession, you know, biggest, you know, economic recession that most people alive have seen. And you know, the venture capital industry, you know, at that time was telling startups. You know, there's this famous Sequoia presentation, you know, RIP good times, where it was all about, okay, everyone, you know, cut your burn, retrench, capital is going to be scarce, manage your resources carefully because we're not going to be in an era where you know, companies can raise capital freely. Actually, not that long after that, um, just a couple of years, you know, we, we entered this this period of, you know, what many refer to as blitz scaling. You know, my, my old boss and, and mentor, Fred Reed Hoffman, you know, wrote a book on this and was teaching this at, at uh, Stanford. And, and lots of other people have used this term too, right? Where, okay, people are now awakening to the fact that, you know, technology innovation and, and software eating the world and, and all the other things that we talk about is a real thing. And not only the real thing, but there's an opportunity for companies to address a global market and global audience faster and earlier than they ever were able to. And, you know, we, we talked about, you know, this, this notion of blitz scaling and you should actually grow, you know, raise lots of capital and grow super, super hyper fast because the opportunity was so broad. It was broader than it's ever been and technology was, was going to change everything. You know, during this period, VCs and, and startups, you know, really prized growth above all costs more than anything else. And then, you know, just in the last couple of years here, we started to see this retrenchment where both founders and investors are, are capital still very plentiful, right? You know, there's lots and lots of capital, both at the early stage and late stage for, for technology startups. But founders and investors are now starting to focus on things like unit economics and, you know, profitability and, and all sorts of stuff. And then, you know, here's we enter the beginning of this new decade in 2020. You know, you have lots of companies that went public last year or the year before. Some of prospered and done really well in the public markets. You know, others have, have faced challenges. You know, there's late stage companies that have raised lots and lots of capital who, you know, are sort of stepping back. And, you know, there's been a bunch of already here just in the first two weeks of 2020, there's been a variety of announcements of companies who are, you know, making layoffs um, as a way to, you know, reduce their burn and, and you know, shorten their, their path and timeline to profitability. And so if I were to step back, let me first say, I am not a, you know, macro economy prognosticator. If I if I had a crystal ball and I was brilliant at predicting what was going to happen in the next, you know, several years with the macro economy, I would, I probably would be an early stage VC. I'd probably be a, you know, global macro hedge fund uh, manager and, and do something different, right? So that's not who I am or what I, you know, would claim to to have some set of expertise around. But you know, what I would say is that I don't think that the the next ten years of venture capital is going to be something where there's this dramatic. At some point, there will be another recession and there will be, you know, macro retrenchment and whatever else. But I think the innovation waves that are have been going on in the last few years are only persistent. And new innovation waves around all kinds of different areas, whether you're talking about AI or synthetic biology or you know other new areas, are are going to start to come to the fore potentially. I think the innovation waves and the ability of technology and software to impact the world, like that's not going to change. And so I think the next 
you know, five, 10 years of, of venture capital part of ecosystem. There's, there's probably going to be a, a macro business cycle or two in there, but the underlying innovation ways and opportunity for technology to um, have an impact um, are still going to be very significant. And capital is still very, very plentiful. And if anything, you know, if both founders and investors are 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 somewhat more focused on not just growth at all costs or thinking and critically understanding, you know, where are the opportunities and where are the places where really great, sustainable, innovative businesses can be built? I think that's a great thing. I think it's a good thing. So I guess that's a long way of saying I do believe we are at the end of one cycle and potentially into the beginning of another cycle. I don't mean a, I don't mean a macro, you know, growth expansion versus recession cycle. I mean more of a, a risky startup investor sentiment cycle where it went from gloom and doom to maybe a little bit to overinflated expectations to, you know, perhaps a happy medium now of, you know, really focusing on what are the truly innovative companies, what are the companies that that have the ability to, you know, have a great sustainable long run business and and uh, you know, take a big market share of, a, of an interesting market. Very, very well said. And I think it's fascinating. We'll also have the post in the show notes. How do you think about portfolio construction at the seed level? We we think about it a lot in the sense that seed stage companies are the earliest stage of, of, the, of the VC ecosystem, obviously. On average, for every 10 companies that get started, uh, you know, perhaps one or two end up being, you know, big transformative businesses. Some of them end up being, you know, decent, decent companies, but not, you know, massive and transformative. And then quite a few companies obviously don't make it. Right? That's, that's the power law distribution of, of startup outcomes and, and, and entrepreneurship as, as the tech entrepreneur. And so the way we think about portfolio construction is really that every company we invest in has to be one that we have very high conviction about, right? We, we describe our model as high conviction hands-on investing. We're, we're typically the lead investor. We typically take a board seat at least for the few years, first few years of, of the company post-seed. And we want to be a hands-on, thoughtful capital partner to, to founders at the, at the seed stage. So it's not that we think about this as portfolio theory of, oh, we're just buying 30 random options and hopefully some of them work and we know some of them won't. You know, we have high conviction about every company we invest in when we, when we invest. That being said, we know that some will make it, some will, some will have some decent outcomes, but not massive outcomes. And so for us, it's the first pass is, is really around, like, if you think about venture capital investing as being you know, sort of a three-stage funnel, you, you have to find or, or source great opportunities. And unlike the public equity markets where any investor can go buy any of four or 5,000 public company stocks, you know, in, in the startup, the early stage VC investing, you know, not everyone's going to see every single company. So you have to build a good brand and good reputation and good network with, with entrepreneurs and, and angel investors and founders. So we, we think about the finding and then the, the picking side also is, is quite important too, right? Where, you know, if you are marginally better at, you know, not just sourcing, but then, you know, actually identifying or deciding on, you know, the startups that are better than the average of the power law distribution, then um, you, know, you want to be able to have a better you know, sort of portfolio outcome. As we think about the portfolio construction for seed stage, it's you know invest in a, a decent number of companies. So we invest in about ten companies a year, which is actually not that many relative to, to some of our peers. But over a couple of year period, we'll, we'll invest in you know twenty thirty companies. As the companies progress, we we want to be able to support them and, and make quality investments in, in the ones that that proceed from there. And so you know out of a bucket of thirty or forty companies, we would. You know, anticipate two, three, four end up being the you know really breakout winners. You know, we support all the other companies as well, but the power law of returns is true at the seed stage, just as it is as as it is at the Series A or B or C stage uh, down the line. Thanks for walking us through that. Is there also a certain percentage that you of startups that you look up that might reach out to you cold? I was talking to on a Paul Martinez episode. He was saying how twenty percent of his portfolio companies were actually companies that, that that reached out to him cold. So we absolutely invest in companies where we didn't have a prior relationship or we didn't get introduced to the founder and, and they essentially reached out to a school. It's a relatively small minority of the times. Um, it's, not as, it's not as high as we'll talk about the 20%. It's, uh, I would imagine, less than 10%. Um, but we definitely have invested in companies that have, have reached out to a school. For us, it, it's not just the network in the sense of, okay, we have a Rolodex of people we've, we've met or known or worked with or had our careers and we just tap into that and rely on that. You know, we think about the startup ecosystem broadly and, you know, how do we be an, an active participant there? And so it's not just the people that we know, but it's also, you know, we do a bunch of systematic things to try and get to know would-be founders, you know, before they start companies. We do a variety of things on the content side, you know, with 
with what we do with our, our blog content or our, our pitch deck templates, or, you know, we, we don't publish it anymore, but we had a pretty active podcast for, for a number of years that garnered a lot of attention uh, called Traction. Things that we do in the content side also help us, you know, get to know founders or help them get to know us. And, and really at the end of the day, it's around getting, you know, being top of mind with founders or people who know founders, you know, when they're raising a seed round or before when they're, before they're raising a seed round. You know, great founders, the, the notion of proprietary deal flow really doesn't exist. People talk about, you know, VCs say, oh, we have proprietary deal flow. Well, any great founder is going to talk to more than one venture capitalist when they raise a round of funding, whether it's their seed round or their D round. And so what matters is, you know, if you have a relationship with those founders already, great. Um, if you don't, um, are you, you know, one or do, two degrees connected from them? And do they know who you are? And do you have some, some brand equity that, uh, you know, would, would make them, you know, have you as a consideration set of the, you know, first three or five people that they're going to go talk to. That's really what matters. So next few ventures invest in founders and companies that are redefining the everyday economy. What does the everyday economy mean to you? The theme is, you know, this everyday economy theme. And to us, what that means is there's a variety of cutting edge technologies and novel business models that are now today being applied to categories of everyday mass market living. And when we talk about, you know, market size and, you know, macro trends and big markets, it's happening in categories of, of truly everyday living. When you think about transportation, you think about housing, you think about food, you think about apparel, you know, work and money and personal finance. There's a handful of categories that matter to kind of everyone. Um, and it's where we spend a lot of our time. It's where we spend a lot of our dollars, where we, you know, 70% of the economy in the United States is driven by activity of consumers. So we're looking for what are these categories of everyday mass market living? You know, we also talk about, you know, what what are things that are ubiquitous or habitual, right? So either everybody experiences you know, with some frequency in their life or a meaningful swath of the population experiences, you know, all the time, every day as a habitual thing. Because that's really, you know, there's innovation. If you think about companies like Uber and Lyft, right, they're, they're innovating in the transportation space. You think about Beyond Meat and Impossible and all these other companies that are doing all kinds of things in the, in the food space. Those are the kinds of companies that, that we're out there looking for um, because we think that they, A, there's a great opportunity there. There's, there's big businesses and big markets to go after. You know, we think they're also companies that are going to impact everyday mass market people. That's how we describe our theme, and that's why we focus on you know sort of those kinds of business thematically. That being said, we're very open to investing in, in, in B2B companies that are you know ultimately having similar impact, albeit you know indirectly. You know, we've invested in companies in the transportation space, which are not consumer facing, but they are you know building marketplaces around oceanic cargo and things like that, where every single thing that you go buy in the store, eighty percent of it has been on a ship at some point in time. The transportation and supply chain of that, even though it's not a consumer facing element of it, it's hugely changing, you know, what we do as consumers every single day. Thank you for that. That's a great overview. So I know that you might have uh, touched on this briefly earlier, but um, what are some consumer trends that you're most excited about moving forward? Maybe two things to touch on. There's lots of things that we look at. And and in, in all fairness, we, we try to understand and, and think about consumer trends and markets broadly. But you know what? There's thousands and thousands of really, really smart, really, really hardworking founders and entrepreneurs out there thinking about new markets and other things way more intently than we are. So we try to form our own market theses and views on market trends, but we also try to remain open-minded when we meet a founder who's working on, on a market problem that we just may, may not know a lot about or hadn't, hadn't thought about. But just to touch on a couple of things that we've been seeing or thinking about or where we've been making some investments, you know, one is, has been in the digital health space, and we're certainly not the only one. There's lots of investors who've been uh, active in, in digital health for, for some period of time. But I think it's in the relatively recent past, meaning the last, you know, three, four, five years where it is possible to start to create and influence consumer behavior around health with, you know, new technologies and new business models. And that's whether you're talking about, you know, using mobile apps and the AI to, you know, help tackle different areas of mental health, whether you're talking about, you know, all the various companies out there that are, you know, trying to, to you know, use telemedicine to bring prescriptions or, or medical practices to, to consumers more directly. So digital health scenario that we've been, we've invested in a number of companies just in the last, you know, 12, 18 months, and we continue to look, uh, you know, very actively there. You know, another one is is not really like a, a market trend in a very narrow sense. It's an what I would call a very, very broad set of forces that, that I, I we think are, are starting to impact the economy or are likely to impact the economy in the next decade and beyond, which is around consumer choice and consumer influence around things like 
sustainability and climate change and you know social responsibility and, and, and what have you. And and I say that not in the sense of, okay, well, these are new things or that people haven't been concerned about these things before. What we have observed is that people's purchase behaviors today and going forward are starting to be influenced about things. And that's true whether you're talking about people who are, you know, starting to switch to or increase increase the portion of their diet that's a plant-based food because they're, you know, maybe have, have they, they see some health benefits there, but they may also be doing it because of, you know, potential sustainability and, and, and climate forces that, that are at play. Or whether you think about energy storage, right? We made an investment recently. There's a software company that is going to be building software that will be highly relevant in a world where storage of energy and batteries is everywhere all around us. And that's true whether you're talking about, you know, an electric vehicle that's parked in someone's garage. That's true if you're talking about the, you know, Lime Bird, you know, Skip, you know, micromobility scooter, which two-thirds of the value of that thing is a, is a lithium-ion battery sitting there. It's true whether you're talking about, you know, batteries that are used to store energy for residential storage or grid-scale storage or whatever. So in a world where batteries are all around us and energy is stored in lots of ways, there's a bunch of interesting software problems that need to get solved to make that a reality. You know, these are both the digital health side and, and then also starting to see, you know, the impacts of consumer choice and consumer behavior where sustainability and, and climate are, are maybe not the forefront of their purchasing decision, but they're sometimes becoming a component of their purchasing decision or, or things that we're thinking about. Uh, another example in the non-durable CBG category like Grove, what Grove is tackling there. Absolutely. What's one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital? I think there's lots of things that the venture capital industry or the venture capital model does really, really well. You know, there's all kinds of studies from from different organizations about many of the fastest growing companies in, in this country and, and in other countries too, and many of the most innovative companies, they got their start, at least from an economic standpoint, a financial standpoint, with, with the help of venture capital. So to call the VC industry an industry is kind of a, I think, a, maybe a misnomer because it's a teeny tiny slice of the, of the investment world and a teeny tiny slice of the economy, but, you know, we're fortunate to be able to be at the intersection of, of really great entrepreneurs and, and, and really great innovation. Um, but there's also things that you know, I think lots of people understand and are doing things to try to change in terms of gender representation in, in amongst the workforce and venture capital and, and in terms of a whole bunch of other things. And so all those things I think are, um, they're not solved by any means and there's lots of things that many of us and many people are, are trying to do to, to change, but um, at least they're starting to become more well understood. I guess the one thing that maybe not as well understood, or maybe 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 impossible to to change is you know it's still really I say that raising money for another stage startup it's it's not about finding uh, sorry it's not about uh, convincing skeptics it's about finding the true believers and uh, because investing in an early stage startup is a sort of risky you know unknowable thing and you know the numbers and ratios are true right where you know and by the way I've, I've been on the the other end of this too right when, when we raise uh, LinkedIn Series A, we pitched dozens and dozens of VCs, and you know the vast majority of them said no. <laughs> um, we were fortunate to get a couple term sheets and, and you know raise a successful Series A, but we still had more, way more no's than we had yeses. Um, and so I think in a perfect world, there'd be some uh, some way to help do the matching and sorting between you know startup team opportunity X and venture investor Y so that uh, everybody's time and efficiency could be increased. But I can't think of what the magic, you know, short of having a magic wand, I can't quite think of what the innovation would be that would that would make it so that entrepreneurs could find the right investors, you know, more efficiently and more quickly and vice versa that, you know, investors could find the, 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 the right the right startups for them, uh, you know, more quickly and efficiently. What is one book that inspired you professionally and one book that inspired you personally? It's an old, oldie but a goodie, so it's not uh, like a recent book, but uh, one of my favorite books professionally is It's Still Good to Great uh, by Jim Collins. Uh, this is probably 20, 25 years back, maybe more than that now. It's probably in the 90s. Just in talking about different approaches and philosophies to building truly exceptional or great organizations and companies. That's something I read relatively early in my career and, and made me think about lots of things. I don't know if it inspired me per se to, to, to go down a particular career path, but it definitely shaped my thinking around a variety of things in my professional life. In my personal life, this goes back to my childhood, but one of my favorite books as a child and one that, I don't know if it inspired me, but again, maybe shaped me a little bit, was that was Mutiny on the Bounty, which is a sort of semi-fiction tale, right? Because it's, uh, it's about real events, but kind of fictionalized in many ways. But uh, the, uh, if you don't know the story of the bounty, is this, this ship that set out to, to do kind of this global kind of exploration in the 1700s and where it ended up being a mutiny and uh, a bunch of people ended up getting marooned on an island in the Pacific. 
but what was interesting to me about it was the initial sense of purpose that was was around this this ship and this vessel and this mission, but then also how human interactions can get messy and <laughs> and change the way people feel, but that can also overcome some difficult things too. So that was always a favorite of mine. Cool, I'll certainly have to check them out. And so, what is your most uh, recent investment and what makes you excited about it? So it's the one that I alluded to just a, a few minutes ago about the software company that's going after building important software for a world where battery energy storage is ubiquitous. And again, given that they're kind of in stealth mode, I, I want to be respectful to the founders and not talk too much specifically about you know them and what they're doing. And, 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 but really what made me excited about it was twofold. One, you know, the two co-founders are, are pretty extraordinary folks in terms of they're both folks who have both deep uh, experience in you know engineering and technical fields but also you know a lot of uh, great experience building things but then also the the opportunity what gets me excited is you know i i do share the vision of their their future where batteries and storage of energy is, is more ubiquitous than it is today but also that not only does that create a huge opportunity but solving some of the key problems around how that becomes a reality actually has a has a big impact on the world i i think there's a a huge business for them to build, but then I also think that if they're successful and the world unfolds as they as their vision uh, holds, you know, it'll be an impact to a pretty meaningful impact to the world. That's really cool. You've given some some excellent advice, but what's what's one piece of advice for early stage B two C founders? Trust your gut. It's a very simplistic thing, and you know, everyone makes decisions and analyzes the world in different ways. But it's very easy to overanalyze things, especially early on in the life of a company. And you don't want to make terrible decisions. Making terrible decisions is rarely produces good outcomes. But making pretty darn good decisions quickly is way more important than making the precise right decision slowly. And there's lots of different permutations of this, right? There's the, you know, good be the enemy of great. Don't let great be the enemy of good or perfect be the enemy of great. I forget what the, the, the phrase is. And, but basically, at the early stage, there's so much to do and you have to move very, very quickly. And there's just no, not that many people or not that much resources around you. So you have to do lots of things based on, you know, instinct and gut. In addition to analysis, in addition to thoughtful perspective, but, you know, really more than anything, I think trusting your gut is super important for those founders. And that's true whether you're talking about you know, making a, a, a product decision around this, what, you know, what should, what should we do? Bringing in some talented people, should, should we bring them in or not bring them in? It also goes into tough decisions too, right? So when uh, an early member of the team is, is not working out and your gut tells you that that's what, what you should do, you should, you should take action. Don't wait three months. So um, trust your gut. It's, it's important to make good decisions quickly than the precise right decision very slowly. I do agree with you. That's very important and not overanalyzing. Well, Lee, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on. And, and I really enjoyed this conversation. Great. I enjoyed chatting with you, Mike. And uh, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having Lee on the show, and I really appreciate him taking the time and answering all my questions. If you would like to keep up to date with Lee, you can follow him on Twitter at Lee Hauer. Links to his blog post will also be located in the show notes that I highly recommend. If you're a founder and working on something innovative, have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me or follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. And for all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks. And until next time.